welcome to the Our Foundations podcast. My name is Joshua, and I will be your host today as we get back into another episode on education. This time it is on the modern education system, mainly the public school system, but we will pick up where we left off last time in the origins of education and go ahead and discuss what education was like in the colonies and early America, then bring that into the beginning of the public school system, and then go ahead and talk about some issues that go on in the current system the way it is set up. So that's our plan. I'd like to start off with a quote from John Taylor Gatto, and I should probably explain who he is to begin with, because a lot of the information I have today came from some of his books and speeches, and he was a school teacher in New York and won Teacher of the Year two years in a row. And at one of his acceptance speeches, he ended up giving a speech that was, let's say, not so kind to the public school system and called out a lot of the things that he taught the students and that he realized over the years that were not really all that good and things that he did not want to teach them. And he ended up quitting a year later and said he could not harm the children in this way anymore. And so he is a good contrarian voice when we talk about the education system. Let's go ahead and start off with a quote from him to kind of set the stage for today's episode. This is John Taylor Gatto. I've noticed a fascinating phenomenon in my 30 years of teaching. Schools and schooling are increasingly irrelevant to the great enterprises of the planet. No one believes anymore that scientists are trained in science class, or politicians in civics classes, or poets in English classes. The truth is that schools don't really teach anything except how to obey orders. This is a great mystery to me because thousands of humane, caring people work in schools as teachers and aides and administrators, but the abstract logic of the institution overwhelms their individual contributions. Although teachers do care and do work very, very hard, the institution is psychopathic. It has no conscience. It rings a bell, and the young man in the middle of writing a poem must close his notebook and move to a different cell, where he must memorize that humans and monkeys derive from a common ancestor. Again, that was John Taylor Gatto and his opinion on what was going on with the school system in his day, but... To begin today's episode, we are going to go back much further than that and, again, pick up where we left off last time. Last time we did the Origins episode and covered how schools first came up, what education looked like in early societies, and how that evolved and got um, into the beginnings of state education at the end of that. We mentioned the Prussian education system, and we'll get back into that today. But we want to start off with the beginning of America. And to begin with, in the colonies, education was all privately funded. So you had some tutors, you had schoolhouses where a teacher would be paid by the local people that lived there to teach their children. You had charity schools. The Catholic communities were especially good at doing charity schools for the poor and in some colonies, you actually did have mandatory education for certain age ranges, nothing like the age range we have today, but for a smaller age range, they were required to go to school. 
As far as higher education went, there were some universities that were in existence, and one I'll mention specifically is William and Mary. I mention this because Thomas Jefferson actually went there, and when he went there to begin with, there was actually no set time frame for how many years you went to college. There was no degree that you got at the end of it. There was no set structure where you signed up for classes. But rather, what it was, was that if you wanted to better yourself and wanted to learn, then you would go to a college like William & Mary, and you would participate, and you would learn. You would go to lectures, you would discuss with other classmates, and you would grow your intellectual knowledge. And that was why you were there, and that was what you did. It wasn't about getting a piece of paper at the end. It wasn't about staying for a certain amount of years or a certain amount of time. It wasn't about being extremely structured and making sure you know these seven specific topics that you must know before you can graduate college. It's nothing like that. It was that these people were not necessarily looking for better opportunities, but more to just become better as individuals themselves, which hopefully would lead to better opportunities as well. But the focus here was that these individuals were intrinsically motivated themselves to learn. They wanted to better their education and they did so. A lot of that was discussion-based, and some people it might have taken a few years, and some people it might have taken five years. It just depended on the person, and you could basically pick what you wanted. And so that's how things were done in many universities at the time. Now, in the early 1800s, you had a type of schooling that was becoming prevalent called monitorial schooling. So what this was, was that you had students who were monitors. And these monitors were typically the best students in a class. And let's back up slightly here. The schools were understaffed. There weren't very many teachers. Teachers were not actually educated to teach. There was no school you could go to to learn how to be a teacher. And they were not funded very well. There were a lot of kids in some of these schools. And so teachers were very overwhelmed. And that was why this monitorial system came up. So getting back to that system, these students that were the best students who were the monitors, the teacher would teach these monitors in the morning. She she or he would get them all together teach these kids the lesson for the day. Then these kids would go to separate areas and separate groups of kids or separate rooms, depending on how the school was set up. And that monitor student would teach the lesson to all the classes. And this would leave the teacher able to do whatever they needed to do and help in whatever ways they needed to and teach as much as they could, but just the reality was if you have a hundred kids that are in the school and one teacher, that teacher's not going to be able to realistically teach all these kids. That's a bunch of different subjects, that's many different levels that you have to teach to. It's just not very feasible. But under this monitorial system, it actually did work well. As this system evolved, you had an influence from two specific people. One was a British teacher named Joseph Lancaster. Another was Andrew Bell, and they both had similar systems that they came up with. 
And these were monitorial systems, but they're much more structured. So they had specific classes that were separated by mastery. So depending on how well you knew a subject, you would be put in a certain class. Whether you were anywhere near the age range of everybody else in that class, that didn't matter. It wasn't age-based. It wasn't grade-based. It was mastery-based. So you might be with a lot of younger kids than you in a math class, but maybe with a lot of kids that are much older than you in some sort of English or reading class or literature. And it just depended on your skills and how well you had mastered these different areas. Now, the monitors managed everything. They handled it all. So the monitors would teach the different classes, and the students would then demonstrate their comprehension of the subject to the monitor. And that's how this worked, and the monitor would then report to the teacher. Now, at this time, teachers were not really well respected. Again, they were not trained to be teachers. I saw one quote, it's not worth looking up again, but it was something to the extent of, you know, generally the teacher was the mayor's drunk uncle who didn't have any other job. And I'm sure things like that did happen because, again, there was no qualification, there's no certification, and it was not a well-respected job, it wasn't a well-paying job. So teachers were maybe not your highest quality as you would expect today. But they did do a job, and um, they were needed. There weren't very many people that were teachers, and even though some probably got in that were very unqualified, in general, the town would want a fairly qualified individual, intelligent individual to teach their kids. And it was just hard to find people because teachers, that was not a common profession. The monitorial system in general was pretty cheap, which was one of its main advantages. They were able to handle a lot of kids with only one or two teachers, and that meant that you only had to pay for one or two teachers, and most of your work was being done by other students. Now, this aspect was, it was contentious by parents because parents did not think that their children should be the teachers. They thought that their children should be learning things at school and not being responsible for the duties of teaching things to other kids. And so this was a bit of an issue. On the flip side, though, when you look at studies about memory retention and mastery over skills, typically you see that you have a lot better retention and a lot better understanding when you teach something versus just hearing it or even hearing it and interacting with it, it's typically always better when you hear it, you interact with it, you discuss it, and you teach it. That gives one of the highest levels of understanding and memorization with any given topic. So there were also advantages to being a monitor from a learning perspective. Moving on, I want to get back to the Prussian education system that we had mentioned in the last education episode And this was going on in the 1700s in Prussia, but it wasn't until around 1840 that that system was brought to America. The main person that's credited with bringing this system to America is a man named Horace Mann. He had traveled overseas and had seen what their education system was like. He saw that there were trained teachers, they had age-based classes, There was segregated information and topics. There was public education that was free for everyone. And he saw this and thought it was great. 
This is wonderful. This is a great system. Why don't we have this? So he came back and brought these ideas to America. His thought was that he wanted to centralize schooling through state control. He also wanted to spread Christian values. He was a Unitarian, and he definitely wanted to spread that sect of Christianity, especially over the Catholics, because they had different religious views than he did, and he did not necessarily agree with those views. We saw in our previous education episode that religion does have many different roles to play in the history of education specifically, and it still was at this point in time. At this time, that was one of the motivations for creating these schools and making it universal. They were not just teaching skills. They were not just teaching basic mastery over the concepts you would think of, reading, writing, arithmetic. It was also about morality. It was about the values. It was about the religions that were practiced, and these were mainly Christian sects of different kinds, the Puritans, the Unitarians, the Catholics. And so these people that were in charge of setting up schools often did have their own personal values that they wanted to pass along to the children. And of course, if you want to control, in a sense, or influence a group of people in society, probably the best way to do that is to be involved with teaching them from the time they're little children and telling them exactly how the world works and how they're supposed to think. It does have a good rate of success. may not necessarily be moral, but hey, it works. So, Coming off of this, where Horace Mann introduced the system, it started to become more popular, people were getting away from the monitorial system, you had a committee that was called the Committee of Ten in 1892, and they met and ended up coming up with some standards that would then be taken to all the different states and be used on a more standardized basis. What they came up with was that there should be 12 years of basic education. You should split the schools between elementary schools and high schools. So you split up the younger kids from the older kids. There should be standardized teaching methods. Along with that, the teachers should be more highly qualified, and you should have what they called normal schools where teachers would be taught to teach. So it's like an individual going to college to become a teacher nowadays. Another aspect that they decided on was that you should have subject education courses for universities where they taught specific courses on specific subjects at a much higher level for these higher learning institutions. They also believed in clear hierarchy and administration And they believed that everyone needed to learn high-level skills. And it wasn't just about all the basics of being literate, but there was much more that people needed to learn. Going along with this, I had mentioned that this occurred in 1892, but around this time you also had compulsory education that was beginning to take effect around America. And this began in 1852 in Massachusetts, but it took place all the way until 1918 when the final state implemented compulsory education laws. This was met with some backlash in many different states and communities. There are stories of 
soldiers coming and taking children at gunpoint and herding them to school that way because the parents refused to send their children to school. There were also threats that if parents did not send their children to school, that they would take the children away from them and put them in the hands of someone at the state that would better care for their needs and their education. So that was kind of how things worked out at the time. Moving on from that, in the, let's say, around 1900 time frame, you had a man that was very influential for modern education, and that was John Dewey. Now, John Dewey, he believed very strongly in human development and diversity, and he was very big on democracy. That was one of his big things that he spent a lot of time talking about in his books. I'm going to read an excerpt from an article that I came across doing my research for this episode, and it is on Dewey's principles and how he thought about education in general, and it's generally coming out of the two books that were very influential from him, and that was The School and Society from 1899 and Democracy of Education, which he wrote in 1916. So it says, Dewey claims that rather than preparing citizens for ethical participation in society, schools cultivate passive pupils via insistence upon mastery of facts and disciplining of bodies. Rather than preparing students to be reflective, autonomous, and ethical beings capable of arriving at social truths through critical and intersubjective discourse, Schools prepare students for docile compliance with authoritarian work and political structures, discourage the pursuit of individual and communal inquiry, and perceive higher learning as a monopoly of the institution of education. So, Dewey was also not a big fan of how school was going on at that point in time. That does have some parallels with John Taylor Gatto. However, John Dewey had many different ideas. He came from a background of Hegelian philosophy, which was much more focused on the society over the individual. The individual got their purpose from the state and from society and their interaction with it and how they could help their fellow man and their fellow state. And that was kind of one of the ideas that came out of Hegelian philosophy. And John Dewey did study under some teachers that did follow those principles and taught those principles and that had an influence on him as he was going through his schooling. He believed fully in education as being interactive. He believed it should be problem-based, and he believed that the students should have some hands-on experience with what they were learning that it wasn't just about a teacher getting up there and explaining something to a child and them just, you know, magically understanding it and learning, but it was more about the children being able to tie it to something that they understood with examples about them being able to interact with the information and do some hands-on work, and he believed that this was the way to teach. He also, as I mentioned, he was big on society and democracy. He believed that you needed to teach these children the civics type content so that they could be well-informed citizens and be able to vote and be able to do what was best for society and be productive citizens. 
And so he believed in doing group work as well. That was a big deal because he thought that school was a social place and that learning was a social activity and that this was something you did in a more communal way, that everybody came together and did this together, and that was kind of one of his philosophies. So coming out of this time period and into more of the later 20th century, we see that there are some things that could identify the common classroom of the time. This would be that the children are sitting in rows, they are all fairly quiet, they are still, they are listening to a teacher, and it is very lecture-focused. There is very standardized content on what was being taught, very strict schedules on when classes would change and what they would do, and the children were learning very individually, where each child was responsible for learning their own material, and that was it. And this was generally how schools were structured Coming into the 20th century and beyond up until more recent times, this was the average classroom. Now, there had been some movements that came out in the 60s and 70s, in the 80s, 90s, and to modern day. There have been many different movements that have come through that were very different from this classic model. And in our next episode on education, I'm going to be discussing alternative education and talking about some of these ideas, but to briefly mention them, you had the open school concept that went around for a while. I believe that was in the 70s or 80s, and what this was was you generally had very large and open rooms, more like what you would think of as like a cafeteria-sized space, and they had different workstations set up, and kids kind of just went to whatever station they were interested in and could learn about whatever was being taught there, and they weren't as divided by age. So if you had a child that was really into math and they're very good at math, they could go to the station that was a station working on geometry, even though technically the kid in a normal setting would be well prior to that level on their math skills. But they would be able to advance themselves and look at something a little more advanced. Also, if they were not big fans of science, for example, they might not go to the science station, but rather go to the literature station and learn more about literature. And it was very student-led and open and free, and that was a mentality. It also, as you can imagine, had plenty of issues that would come up. A lot of teachers didn't like it just because it was very hectic and very loud and things of that nature. Another movement was the non-graded schools, which is just like it sounds, schools where they did not really give grades and they thought that that would really help the students to learn. There were the Montessori schools. So these focused on giving an individual education to each individual child, where you would study the child, see how they learned, see what they were interested in, and basically customize the teaching and the learning to each individual child. It was a lot of hands-on activity and them doing things themselves, and it was also very student-directed. And that was the Montessori method, a very brief version at least. Another movement was the unschooling movement. So this kind of came out of the homeschooling movement, which is another one that was an alternative movement there um, that's always been around. 
but the unschooling kind of took that to the next level where you didn't necessarily have formal classes and lessons that you did at home, but rather you would basically walk alongside your child and help them and guide them to whatever their interests were. So if they were interested in, I don't know, McDonald's, for some reason they were wondering how a hamburger was made. Well, you would help them learn about maybe the farm where beef is raised and how the farm structure works and how the cows are brought up and what the standards are. You may talk about marketing and how McDonald's markets to all of its customers, trying to broaden their customer base. You might talk about things like economics and how they set their prices and what their costs are, and basically just get into the whole gamut of everything involved with this thing that your child was interested in. And so it's not a structured system, but it is one where they are interested and they get to learn about many different subjects all kind of tied together so they can really understand it. And since they're interested, they might actually try to understand it and try to learn more. So that was more of the unschooling method. Now, that's everything that I am covering for that section, and we are going to move on to the next section, which is more about the negative aspects of our current public school system. And I say current, but there are plenty of teachers and plenty of schools that are doing some different teaching methods, which are very good. They're breaking away from the kind of more stereotypical classroom setting. There are plenty of elementary schools that don't even have desks in their rooms. They just have some tables pushed together and maybe some beanbags around it that the kids sit at and do work at together. Um, many classrooms are much more free, where the kids are free to get up and move around and interact with each other, do more group projects. There are things like outdoor kindergartens, where you have kindergarten and other grades as well that are doing a lot of their work outside and in nature and interacting with nature to help learn with the lessons and lots of different things like this that are going on in public schools around the nation. However, this is still definitely not the norm. The norm, let's start off with lectures. So that is the norm still, that teachers are in front of the class giving a lecture to the students who are sitting in the class and listening. Now, typically in these days, it's more of a PowerPoint lecture where the teacher has a PowerPoint, they flip through the slides and basically read them off, maybe give some comments here and there to elaborate on these slides, and that's how it goes. Now, John Taylor Gatto mentioned in the quote that I read at the beginning of this episode, and I want to mention that again. And this is the point that most teachers want their students to learn. They want to teach well. They are well-intentioned and try hard and work hard, and many of them do a very good job. So I don't want to give the wrong impression when I discuss some of the problems that go on in classrooms and schools nowadays because many teachers are doing a great job and most of them do care. However, some of the structures of the system are set up in a way that is not very beneficial for the students. So for example, the lecture and PowerPoint system and that method of teaching, it doesn't 
involve the kids very much. Now, usually teachers will try to do a group project every now and then, maybe a few times a year. They might have a discussion every now and then in class or maybe for the last 10 minutes of class or whatever. But the bulk of the class is still lecture or PowerPoint style. And basically, most of the studies that have happened in the recent past show that that is not the best way for a child to retain information and to learn. But that is the way that it is still typically done. Another issue that really came up during the Common Core Standards and is still a very controversial subject, and that is that of standardized testing. So it makes sense that you want to make sure that all the children are learning. You want to make sure they are learning well and that they are getting the basic information that they need to learn. However, when you assess this through standardized testing, what ends up happening is that the students are taught to pass a test and do well on a test. They are taught how to take a test, and most of their classroom time is going to be taken up teaching to the test, and everything's about the test. And testing in general in classes has some issues here as well, but the standardized testing is especially prevalent in the issues that it brings up. Another reason for this is that a lot of funding is tied to standardized testing. So depending on how well the group of students does as an aggregate in the school on the standardized test, that can influence the amount of funding that that school receives from the federal government and or state government. And this is something that incentivizes teachers to make sure that their students do very well on this test. And I personally remember back in elementary school, in the standardized test at the time, there was this five-paragraph essay that apparently was very important, this five-paragraph essay. And we spent at least three-quarters of the year on learning how to write a five-paragraph essay. And it was very detailed. We went over it again and again and again. We wrote so many five-paragraph essays that had the exact same structure. You had your, I still remember, you have your thesis statement where you would describe the three things you were going to talk about in your introductory paragraph. And then you have the three supporting paragraphs that discussed each one of those three points that you mentioned. And you try to make segues from one paragraph into the next. And then you do a conclusion paragraph at the end. And that's your fifth paragraph. And we spent the majority of the year learning how to do a five paragraph essay. I specifically remember that the teacher mentioned this at the beginning of the year, that this would be our main focus for the year. And at the end of doing the standardized test, I remember that there wasn't a whole lot of time to do much of anything else after that. And I remember the teacher commenting on that. And so just a little anecdote of how that works out. But you can understand the, I don't know, the incentives behind that, because so much is tied to what the test scores are, that that's what teachers are going to teach to. On the flip side, when you have things like the ACT, the SAT, and your tests in general, a lot of times there's only going to be a limited amount of tests in a class. And if your grade has a lot to do with how you do on each one of these tests, because they have a lot of weight um, when you figure up your grade, then students are very incentivized to try to do very well on these tests. There's only a few of them, and if they do well on them, then they're almost guaranteed to do well in the class. If they don't, then they're going to have a really hard time. 
So students spend a lot of time studying and learning how to memorize for a test, and this does not promote true learning. It promotes memorization. It promotes remembering things until you take the test, spitting it out, and then you can just forget about it because who cares? And that is the mentality that's being promoted, which is not the best mentality. The next thing to mention would be that in today's school system, you have this mentality of the students are not allowed to fail. So I say that technically kids can fail. But I have overheard teachers specifically talking about this, where the one time I can think of there was a new teacher, and you could tell by the way they were talking, this was probably your first year, maybe second year, and she was talking to another teacher that was an older teacher there, and they're talking about what grades you were allowed to give your kids. And so the older teacher was basically saying that, well, you really don't need to give them any lower than a 60 because 60 is failing. But if you give them any lower than that, then it's really hard for them to bring their grades up. And they don't want you to give a much lower grade, even if they deserve it. At least just give them a 60. That way they have a chance to bring their scores up fairly easily and they don't have a good chance of failing. And they were discussing this concept. But basically it was that if a student made a 10% on the test and only got, you know, half a question right, they still made a 60 just because the school system didn't want the kid to get a horrible failing grade and then not be able to make it up and go on to the next grade. We have this aversion to failure in our culture today. This has to do with grades. It has to do with the grade levels themselves, where you don't want to fail a kid for the year and make them repeat a grade. Although this does happen sometimes, they really try to avoid doing this. It makes the school look bad, and they don't want that. Uh, Also, suspensions are not very common nowadays. They still do suspensions, but as long as they can get away with it, most schools try to do in-school suspension, where instead of basically kicking the kid out for a few days, they keep them in the school. And I've personally seen what these in-school suspension classes look like, and it's mainly the kids just sit at a desk and play on their phone all day, and that's about it. Maybe they do some homework or things like that, and that's supposed to be their penalty. It does not seem very comparable to kicking them out for a few days, but that's generally what they try to do now. And expulsion is highly frowned upon. A lot of schools do have zero tolerance policies, and they will enforce that. They will kick kids out and expel them. But in general, there is this mentality that we don't want anyone to fail. It's the no child left behind mentality. And this does have some negative effects. The next issue I wanted to bring up is related to this, and that is that most classes have to be taught to the lowest common denominator. So if there is one child in the class, or let's say two or three children in the class that are really struggling to get a concept, and the teacher is trying to teach this, and the kids just aren't getting it, well, the teacher has to make sure that these kids get it. They can't just move on to the next concept and leave these kids behind. So even if 90% of the kids in the class fully understand this 10 minutes into class, the teacher might have to spend the entire hour-long class period going over the same concept again and again from multiple different angles so that these two or three kids can understand it so that then they can move on. And this is good for the two or three kids. You don't want to leave them behind, and it is understandable. However, 
it also really holds back everybody else. Not only does it hold back the other students from learning more and progressing in a quicker rate, it probably makes them lose interest because they got this like 30 minutes ago. What do they care? They are tired of hearing you explain this over and over again, and they zone out, they draw pictures, they pass notes, you know, whatever the heck they want to do. They're definitely not paying attention to whatever the teacher's saying because she's just going over the same stuff over and over again. And that's kind of the mentality. There's not really much getting around this, though. And this is a problem with most of these issues. It's just the fact that you have hundreds or thousands of kids in a school and you're having to teach them all in large classes with one teacher. You can't really do individual one-on-one lessons. That's just not realistic. It's not very efficient. You need something that is efficient, that is structured, that's more like an assembly line where you have, you know, exactly what you're going to do. You have certain stations set up. You go from one to the next to the next at a specific interval of time. And this is what is efficient. This is what will push these kids through this assembly line of learning and get them out with a GED or with a bachelor's degree or just whatever institution you're talking about. Generally, we're talking about the more elementary, middle, and high school public education. And that's kind of what you have to do because you've got so many kids and you've got to teach them all. You have very specific things that you have to teach them, and that is mandated by the government. And so you don't have a lot of wiggle room and you spend a lot of your time with discipline issues. So I've been in many elementary schools where it seems, at least from an outsider's perspective, and I know some elementary school teachers that say similar things, but that they spend a minimum of 25% of their time, if not 50% of their time, just dealing with discipline and rules. So it's just about getting the kids to behave, getting them to stop talking, punishing the kids that aren't doing their work, making sure the kids do their homework, and just going over how to stand in line in the hallway and when to go to the bathroom and you have, you know, three kids at a time can go in. Then when those three come out, the next three go in. And when you're at the water fountain, you count to five as you get your drinks of water to make sure that you give time for the next person to come up. And it's just all these regimented, detailed rules and systems that they have to set up, they have to enforce. And again, it makes sense. I'm not saying that this is, you know, an evil thing. It's just that that's just the reality when you have so many kids and you're trying to create this efficient and structured system to teach them. That's just kind of what you got to do. But it has the negative side effect that you're not really spending all your time actually teaching. And when you are, you're teaching to large groups that probably are not going to receive information the same way. They don't have the same learning styles. They don't have the same interests. And so this just doesn't really work very well. (laughs) There's not really any getting around it. So the next topics I'm going to mention are a little more outside of the school. The first one is the breakdown at home. Now, I had mentioned this as well in the Origins of Education podcast episode we did before about the role of the family unit in education. But the problem is that the family unit has largely broken down It is not very common anymore. It is actually the minority of families that have a father and a mother that had children after they got married 
and raise those children together. There is no divorce. There's no stepchildren. There's no anything like that. It is just what used to be considered a very normal, average family. That is no longer the norm. Divorce rates are over 50%. Most homes that these kids in the public education school system are coming from are broken homes in some way or another. And this really does impact their learning at school. If kids are having problems at home, then they really can't focus all that much on learning about some subject that they don't care about and they're never going to need to know in the real world. If students are not being fed well enough at home and they live with a single parent who can barely pay the bills and they're not getting the food they need even, well, a hungry child that is struggling at home is probably not going to do very well in class. That's just the reality of it. If they don't have parents at home that can sit down with them in the evening and go over their homework and help them and help them to learn, well, that's not going to be good. It's the same with developing children. So when they're at a very young age, like birth to five years old or so, that is when their brains are developing more than any other time period in their life. And they really need stimulation and interaction. They need to be talked to. They need to be shown different things. And the parents need to make connections with them, point to things. Yeah, that's a dog. And that dog is white. And, you know, explain things. And the kid starts to get it. There have been studies about how many words a baby is exposed to each day. And the babies that are exposed to a low number of words each day tend to do much more poorly when they get into school than babies that are exposed to a large number of words throughout each day. And, you know, intuitively, that just makes sense. If a kid is interacted with a lot and they hear a lot of vocabulary, uh, they're going to probably learn better as those connections are being made in their brain, and they're probably, therefore, going to do better as they get into school. So parental involvement is a big deal. I hear this as the number one complaint when I talk to teachers that what is going on with their parents and their involvement with their kids, that is one of the biggest separation factors. If they had to segregate their kids into two groups, it's not going to be the smart kids and dumb kids. It's not going to be the white kids and black kids or the rich kids and the poor kids. It's going to be the kids with a high level of parental involvement and the kids without a high level of parental involvement. And I have heard this from multiple different teachers, multiple different schools, that this is the environment that they are teaching in, and it is very clear to them which camp each student is coming from. Another aspect of this kind of breakdown at home would be screens. So, This would involve video games and phones and tablets and computers and TV and movies and everything else like this, anything on a screen that takes away from what the kid would be learning otherwise. So it used to be before screens existed that people would have discussions and families would talk together and kids might be interested in, say, animals and instead of watching, you know, random cartoon on Cartoon Network, they might read about cheetahs and giraffes and things they're interested in the savannah or whatever their interests are. 
there would be more learning or maybe they would be playing outside more often and using their imagination and being creative. All these things are good and stimulating for learning. It used to be in kind of the good old days that if you were a high-class person and you were a true gentleman or a nobleman, that you would be expected to know a base level of knowledge and information. Now, this would include concepts from authors like Plato and Aristotle and Socrates, moving on to Thomas Aquinas or Marcus Aurelius, or moving on to Freud, or just all these different authors, all these great books. You have Dickens, you have H.G. Wells. If someone's making a reference to say, the invisible hand when talking about economics, maybe, you would be expected to know that that came from the Wealth of Nations with Adam Smith. Or if someone mentions the Republic, then you would know that that was a book that Plato wrote, and you would know roughly what he was discussing there. These are things that you would be expected to know. Gentlemen had a library in their homes, and they would read these books, they would be discussing these books and these concepts and these ideas, and that was just part of polite society that was expected. And even in the more rural homes, this was still something that people did. The parents would read books to their kids at night for entertainment, and they would be discussing these, what we would think of as more high-level discussions around the dinner table. And this is very different than coming home and sitting in front of a TV on the couch. You should be able to see that there's a difference there. Or having your phone out and searching through Facebook or Twitter or whatever the kid's into, Snapchat, whatever else, they're probably not learning a whole lot there. They're playing video games. It's just pure entertainment and This is not education. They're two different things, entertainment and education. They can kind of go together in some cases, but in general, they don't. Another aspect of the breakdown at home comes from the expectation of parents. So a lot of parents are expecting the school to be a babysitter of sorts, where they can just drop their kid off, the kid is being watched, they're learning something, they're being disciplined, all these different issues are being handled, and the parent doesn't have to deal with it. This is not a very nice reality, but it is a reality. These are the types of parents that are not very involved with their children. They are not very on it with their educational needs. They are not working with them at home. They unfortunately don't really care or seem to not really care about this aspect of their child's life and development, and they just expect the school to handle it all. And to them, that's the point of school. That's the school's job, is to handle all these things. The school is supposed to watch their kids during the day. The school is supposed to teach their kids the academic stuff. Not only that, but they're supposed to teach their kids life skills and everything they need to know to get out on their own, to get a job, to be independent. They're supposed to teach things like morality and character building. And this is something that schools do attempt. But there's only so much that can be done at school by teachers. There is a large responsibility for the parents at home that in many cases, I wouldn't say most cases, it's probably still the minority by far, but there are still many cases where this does occur. Another aspect is self-esteem, where the parents want 
the school and the teachers to make sure that their kid has a high self-esteem and you are not allowed to, in many schools, discipline a child or get onto a child in front of the class. There are a lot of things that used to happen in this regard where a child would be brought up to the front of the class and get reprimanded for something they did or write sentences on the board or you had the dunce cap that was used for a period of time. And these were techniques that were designed to embarrass the child into behaving. And that was the motivation behind it that you get onto the child in front of everybody, they're going to be a little bit embarrassed of being, you know, reprimanded in front of their friends, and so that will motivate them to not disrupt the class again. And that is not allowed anymore. I am not saying necessarily that that was a good tactic to use, but what I am saying is that there seems to be a hyper-focus on self-esteem. It's kind of like the political correctness in our society and our culture right now where you have to be very careful what you say, especially if you are a teacher or an employee of a school, because just one wrong comment even one wrong comment on your Facebook page, on your personal page that has nothing to do with your job, could get you fired at work. And that has happened many different times. So you see this kind of hyper-focus on some of these issues that just is not very helpful for the kids. So, the next aspect is consumerism. That is another one that's being pushed on kids that... let's. I'll, I'll read this quote that I actually heard on a podcast today that was really interesting. Um, the guy said, People buy things they don't need to make impressions that don't last with people they don't know to secure a position in a society that doesn't care. And this does describe our consumer culture. So, when kids are at school... It is important that they wear the right clothes and that they're in fashion and that they're fairly nice. They have the accessories. When kids, when they're young, they have birthday parties. They want to be able to have, you know, a nice cake and have a lot of their friends over and they have a decent house. And as they get older and high school and stuff, you want to make sure that when you're throwing a different kind of party that you want to look good to your friends. Uh, you want to try to drive a nice car. And if you don't, then at least that's what your goal is and your ideal is and you wish you did. So again, it's this consumerism that's going on. When you're learning in class and you're in an economics class, you're going to probably just learn Keynesian economics. And that is all about consumer demand. And that is the focus there. When you're in history, a lot of the focus is on different inventions and products and technology. And it's about the things. It's about the materialism even in business class, you talk about marketing and consumer perception of your goods and products. You want to motivate them and convince them to buy your goods and increase sales. And status does matter. Status is important. This is what you're going to push in your marketing campaign. And you learn this for yourself as well, that it is important. If I'm going to try to go climb the ladder in the corporate setting, you know, it might be worth it to buy a Rolex. Well, reality is that that's not actually going to make you any better at your job, but it is a status symbol and it does play a role. 
And so this consumer culture does influence things as well. Although it is not directly being taught in school and in class and by teachers, it is indirectly being taught to these kids through the influences that they are exposed to at school and in class. So the next idea that I want to go over is that of the college track. So we all know that most parents want their kids to go to college and graduate and get a good job and that this is what you're supposed to do if you are a good kid and well-educated and that kind of thing. Of course, if you have a college degree, then that means you are very well-educated and you are hireable and you will probably get a good job as soon as you graduate. But the reality is that that's not necessarily the case. There's a quote from Frank Zappa, the musician. If you have not heard of him, he is very strange. But he was popular for a time, and he said at one point in time that if you want to get laid, go to college. If you want an education, go to the library. And that brings up a very good point, that a lot of times the culture at college is about socializing and going to parties and getting exposed to these things that you weren't able to do back when you were at your parents' house and they're watching over you. You're finally independent and free as a young teenager. And yeah, there's all the things that are going through your mind right now. And that is kind of the college experience. So although there is plenty of learning, there's also that. Now, not all jobs can be taught well in school. So in the school setting, you generally have kind of a fake work environment in a sense. So when you are learning in, we're going to talk about the college setting, but this is also in high school, when you get into more specific classes about specific subjects and very specific career paths, then they're trying to teach you what you need to know to get a job and perform that job in a business setting. But they're doing this in a classroom setting. And so these are necessarily different. You also are doing this with a bunch of kids that aren't employed and have never done this before, being taught by a teacher who is also not employed in this field. You have no boss, you have no customers, none of it really matters aside from your grade. It's just, it's totally different. You are not going to get anywhere near the same experience trying to fake that in a school setting as you would if you were in an internship or if instead of going to college, you had gotten a job and you had, you know, a year's worth of experience would probably teach you a whole lot more than a year's worth of college classes. So unfortunately, the bachelor's degree, that piece of paper is used as a least common denominator to weed out all the applications that companies get in. So nowadays, so many people have one that they can just put that on the screen where if you don't have a degree, then we are not going to consider you because that's not really going to drop out too many people. And most people that are qualified for the job are probably going to have it anyway. And so unfortunately, that's something that many employers do. And a lot of times it's job requirement as well, where in reality, the employers themselves actually prefer experience and skill over that piece of paper. That piece of paper is not what's truly important to that employer. What's really important is that you'll be able to do the job, you'll be able to do it well, and ideally you'll be able to show them some examples that will show them that you can do these things and that you are qualified for this job. Coming out of college and having a degree, 
doesn't necessarily show those things. It shows that you have the potential to be there. But say you spent four years after high school and you worked in the field, you have a good track record at your job with good recommendations from your supervisors or bosses, you have some projects that you worked on that you can turn in and show examples of your work, and maybe some customer reviews. This is going to prove that you can do your job and you can do it well and you would fit well in this position. That is going to look a lot better to an employer than a degree with absolutely nothing else backing it up. So although college is good in a sense, if you want to make a value judgment on that, it's not necessarily bad to go to college, but it's not necessarily the best way to gain an education to grow yourself intellectually. It can be, but it's not necessarily. And it's not the cop-out that, well, not everybody is meant for college. That's usually, yeah, that's not really said in this type of way that I am meaning. Usually that's more derogatory that, well, they probably weren't smart enough or they were a little too lazy or they just wanted to get a job and make a bunch of money right up front. You know, whatever the case may be, they didn't have good enough grades, and it's more like an excuse. Well, not everybody's meant for college. It's not for everybody. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that college really isn't for everybody. There are plenty of very smart people that probably should not go to college. It's a waste for them. Think of some of the most successful tech entrepreneurs and what they did. They either never went to college or dropped out right away. You have people like... Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg and all kinds of names. You could probably list 20 names that you would recognize just at the drop of a hat of entrepreneurs that dropped out of college because it was a waste of their time. And they were very successful, built multi-million, multi-billion dollar companies, and they learned much more outside of the college setting than they did in class. Moving on to the final topic I wanted to mention about what's going on in the education system today. This goes back to the structure of the system itself, and this is the aspect of age-based learning. So all grades and all classes, as a generality at least, are segregated by age. So you have all the kids that are 13 and 14 years old are in this grade, and the kids that are 15 and 16 year old are in this grade, and so on and so forth. If you get out of that, maybe a kid takes an advanced class that has some older kids in it, or a remedial course that has some younger kids in it, but usually it's a difference of a year or two, and that's about it. The reality is, when you get into the real world and you're out of school, that is not how society is structured. Society is not segregated into everybody of equal age hanging out together and working together, especially in the work environment. You are going to be surrounded by people that are much older than you when you first get in the workforce. And as you mature in the workforce, you'll be surrounded by people that are your age, that are younger, that are older, that are much older. It's just a very diverse environment in most jobs and in most sectors you are not going to be around an entire staff of people that are within two or three years of your age, not even within five years of your age, like a whole high school level. So if you separate kids by age in this way, 
you're not really helping them in the sense of getting them ready for working in an environment with lots of people of a diverse age range. You're also not really helping them learn in some ways because when you're around people that are much younger, then you can play the role of teacher, of helping them, of coming alongside them, showing them how to do something, showing them the ropes, that kind of thing. And when you're around people that are older than you, they can do that for you. They've been here longer. They know how the system works. They know things about the job or the customers or whatever the case may be that they can talk to you about and then kind of mentor you and help you. And this is very good for you. So this is a dynamic that is completely missing in the school setting. Not only that, but you end up with a bunch of, say, 15-year-old kids that hang out with nobody but other 15-year-old kids all day long, and all their friends are 15-year-old kids, and all their schoolmates are 15-year-old kids, and the only adults in their life are their parents and their teachers. Well, you know, more than likely, a giant group of 15-year-old kids are probably not going to do very well when you're talking about their maturity and some of their life decisions and conversational topics and things like this are going to be not too savory sometimes and not too advanced. Uh, I highly doubt they are going to be spurring each other intellectually and that kind of thing. No, probably not. But if you had a wide range of ages, then that's going to bring in a lot more topics of conversation. That's going to bring in a lot more perspectives. That's going to help people to learn both from people older than them and people that are younger are going to be taught. So they will learn from the people older than them. And this really helps with learning. And that's the whole point of school is learning. You had this aspect in the one-room schoolhouses from way back when, and there are actually still a few around today, and not that they were necessarily the best way to structure a school, but this was one of the aspects of the one-room schoolhouse that did promote learning with the kids, because you did have all the young and all the old, a huge age range, were in there together, so the young people were exposed to content that was much higher than their level. These were much higher concepts that they were exposed to, they heard, and the older kids would help and teach and explain things to these younger kids with their studies on these lower level concepts. Well, what that did is it helped the older students really understand and really get to know and really learn these subjects because you have to really know it and learn it in order to teach it. That's just the way it is. We talked about retaining things and understanding things and getting to really work with that information and how that really helps when you're teaching. This was an aspect. And also the being taught by another kid, but one that was older than you, sometimes that dynamic is going to add to the experience more than a teacher that's, say, 50 years old and you have no connection with. Maybe you'll be able to relate and understand better when it's coming from a peer. So these are things that are missing in today's school. We have no variety of ages, and that has a much bigger impact than just learning, but it does have a pretty big impact on learning and on preparing the kids for getting out in society and into the real world. 
that'll be the last thing that I'll mention on these different subjects here. And I want to move on to the John Taylor Gatto section. So I can already see this might be a little bit of a long episode. If you like that, then here you go. You're welcome. If you don't like that, then I'm sorry. You're just going to have to deal with it. Break it apart into two episodes if you want. Stop here or just keep listening. So with John Taylor Gatto, he had one famous speech, and this was the one that was his acceptance speech for Teacher of the Year, where he laid out his seven lessons that he discovered that he taught his children over the 30 years of him teaching. He came to the realization that there were seven things that he mainly taught the kids. And let's start with the first one here, and that was that he taught them confusion. So he would teach everything out of context, and everything was disconnected. His different classes would not tie into each other. You would not tie in history with economics, with literature, even though in reality, you had the Industrial Revolution that had a lot of economics involved with that, with prices and production, and you also had literature that was connected with that, maybe Dickens or an author like that, and then you also have things that were going on with the governments at the time and political structures and all this different stuff. You have art of the time. All this could tie in, and children could make connections where, oh, that makes sense, and oh, this is when so-and-so was reigning at the time, and this was when such-and-such event happened, and they could make these connections and tie this stuff together, but what Gatto learned was that he was teaching confusion. He would make sure that all the subjects were isolated, they were not connected, and it was all out of context. He wanted his kids to memorize facts, memorize dates, memorize specific things, but not necessarily to make all these broad connections. The second lesson he taught was position. So he taught his children that this class is where you belong. This class is what's best for you. If it is a low-level class, then it's because you are a low-level student. But don't worry, you know, maybe one day you can make it up to the higher-level class. But it would instill kind of a sense of maybe fear or foreboding that a child might not want to try to attain that, risk of failure, things like that. And if you're in a high-level class, you're there because you deserve to be there. And you, know, you wouldn't want to be down in one of those lower classes. No, this is the place where you need to be. This is what's best for you. And same with specific subjects and subject matter that you know he's in charge. He knows what's best for them. This is where you belong. This is your position. And so position was the next one. The third lesson was indifference. So he taught that his children shouldn't care too much about what they did and what they learned, that it didn't really matter all that much. And one of the examples he mentions is the bells. So when a kid is really involved with a project, or let's say he's in the middle of writing a poem and he's really into it in his class, and that bell rings, well, he better stop what he's doing right then, get up and go to the next class, where it'll be a totally different subject matter, totally unconnected, and whatever it was he was working on, really is nowhere near as important as following the rules and obeying as soon as that bell rings, like the Pavlov dog, where as soon as you hear that sound, you make the reaction and they're trained in this way. And this does teach that 
what you're doing doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter if you're really interested in this subject or you're really into a project because you got to stop. And that's just the way the system is. That's just what you have to do. And kids are trained to do this. It's like busy work where why would you care much about filling out this stupid worksheet where you just fill in the blank and all you're doing is looking back at your book, finding a keyword and putting it in the blank? Like you're not really learning anything. It really doesn't matter. What in the world does this have to do with your life outside of school? When are you ever going to use this in real life? That's a question that every child, I think, asks their teacher or their parents or at least asks themselves many times throughout their learning career. When the heck am I ever going to use this in real life? Well, the answer is usually you're not, and it really doesn't matter. You don't really need to know this stuff, but we believe, we being those in charge, that you should have a basic level of understanding in these specific subjects and these specific events. And so we're going to teach that to you, even though you're just going to memorize them, spit them out on a test and totally forget and you're not actually learning them. We believe that you should be taught them either way. And yeah, that's what you got there. So the next thing that Gatto said he taught was emotional dependency. So he did this through stars and checks and smiley faces, through grades and prizes and hall passes, whatever the case may be, his students were dependent on him to receive their praise or the opposite when he was not happy. And it was all at his discretion. And so they're dependent on how he felt about them and they were emotionally dependent on his approval and that this was something that he was teaching to his children. Also, the next lesson was intellectual dependency. So they were dependent on him to learn something because, of course, they can only learn something from an expert. It's not like they could actually learn any of this stuff on their own. No, they needed someone who was an expert in this specific field. So you couldn't learn anything about the scientific method from an English teacher because you know they don't specialize in that. So of course you'd have to go to a science teacher, and you know heaven forbid you try to learn about it on your own. There's no way you could ever understand it. And of course I'm being sarcastic here, but that is what he taught. It is this intellectual dependency. You do what I say. You do the way I say it. This is a big thing in math um, in our current system. It was when I was in school as well. It's been more of the modern time period where teachers are teaching math in one specific way. So kids are coming home with their homework and saying, you know, Mommy, Daddy, how do I figure out this problem? Will you really, will you help me with this? I've got this algebra equation here. I'm really having a hard time with it. And the parent will be like, oh, well, it's simple. You just, you know, move this and you do this and you do that and you're done. And the kid's like, well, no, no, no. The teacher said I can't do it that way. I have to do it this way. And the the point is, it's math. You have one answer. It's binary. So there are multiple ways to get to the correct answer. And of course, different students learn in different ways. Different individuals learn differently. To some individuals, this method may make total sense. To others, they can't make heads or tails out of it, and they use a different method. Well, that's just common sense, of course. But in today's public school system, and this is not only in math, but that is the biggest place where it pops up nowadays, 
the teachers are teaching one specific way of doing it, and you must show your work. So heaven forbid you're able to solve one step of the equation in your head. You better write down what was going on in your head through solving that equation. I personally remember getting called up to the front of the class one time because I habitually did not show my work on my homework, and the teacher, I guess, thought I was cheating, and they called me up to the front of the class and said, do this problem on the board and prove that you can do it. And I just walked up there and did it in like two steps. And it was, you know, by her method, it was like a 10 step problem. And it was just really simple. It was, there's just an easy way to do it. I was good at math at the time and it wasn't a big deal. But again, they're teaching intellectual dependency where you have to do it the way I tell you to do it. And that is the only right way to do it. And so this is what's being taught. The sixth lesson that Gatto said he taught his children was that of provisional self-esteem. So he gave detailed ratings, and they were given by him, the authority figure, down to the single percentage point of how satisfied or dissatisfied he was with them, of how well they did, of how proficient they are on any specific subject. They are graded, they are rated, There is no such thing as self-evaluation. He mentions that uh, with the culture of, hey, you can be anything you want to be, you can do anything you want to do, feel good about yourself, have confidence, you know, get out there. If you deal with kids like this that truly believe that and have 100% self-confidence, they're going to be a nightmare in class because you can't really control them very well because they just believe that, you know, they can do anything they want and they are able to do anything they want. I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that they are confident in what they are doing. And even if they mess up or fail in one way, they just bounce right back and get back to doing something. Well, it's very hard to direct a child like that because they are much more confident and they can move on to what they want. They don't really care much about your approval because they are doing self-approval and self-assessments on themselves. And, you know, we can't have that. So we have this provisional self-esteem instead where their self-esteem should be determined by what the teacher says they are worth. And the teacher, basically their entire job is to put a rating and a grade on how well this child performs and, you know, what they are worth in the educational setting. The seventh lesson that Gatto talked about was that of surveillance. So it is the idea that you cannot hide. There is no such thing as privacy. Heaven forbid you have kids that, you know, might hang out in the hallway and talk about something they're not supposed to talk about or, yeah, lots of things that could go on. We can't have that. You've got to monitor every second of the day. Nowadays, we've got cameras in most of the schools and all the hallways, and kids don't have privacy. They're not trusted. Now, this is understandable in many ways because kids get into trouble. Kids do bad things. That's part of growing up and being a kid. But part of growing up and being a kid and doing bad things that you learn lessons from these. You fail, you mess up, you do bad things, and you get in trouble for it, and you learn from it. Well, we can't have that. We've got to make sure that they just don't do anything bad. And kids cannot handle the responsibility of having alone time. So not only do we control them every second of the day at school, we have very short time periods in between classes, their days are very structured, but we also make sure we send them home with homework and extra reading to do throughout the summer. And we want to make sure we fill 
all their time, even when they're not even at school. And so I bring back up um, the idea of screens, which is something that Gatto mentions in this section too, that if you add up the hours that a kid spends at school, add in the amount of time that they're driving to and from school, add in the time that they are eating meals at home and that they're sleeping at night, you're left with only a few hours a day that a kid actually has to learn who they are, to learn what they like, to learn anything on their own. And then you add in all the screen time that exists, and you're left with almost no time. And that almost no time is also split between things like sports and hobbies and family time. Hopefully they have at least some family time. But there's not much. There's not a lot of time there because their days are filled with school, sleeping, eating, driving, activities, sports, and TV, video games, social media. There's not a lot of time for kids to actually learn who they are and learn what they're interested in and be able to pursue those interests and have specific things that they're getting into in a good way. Maybe a kid is interested in writing, and so maybe they would have started to write their own little booklet or articles or something that they're perfectly capable of doing, but instead the kid mostly just watches TV and plays video games, and that makes sense. Obviously, video games are more fun than writing articles, but if it weren't for the video games, they might have followed that passion for writing. And so... Going back to the surveillance culture that Gatto talks about, it's just this idea that you're always being watched, and this preps you for life in the real world under the state, where you better do what you're supposed to do, you better follow all the rules, there is an authority that's over you, and you will submit. And so, all in all, these were the seven lessons that Gatto said that he taught the kids, and this was... Again, not intentional. He wasn't intentionally teaching these things to these kids. He cared about the kids and wanted to teach them well. He started actually breaking away from the system and doing things that he got in a lot of trouble for, but that were actually helping the kids learn in different ways. And it's interesting. You should read some John Taylor Grotto if you never have before. But the point is that he started coming to this realization that just through the structure and the system and the way the school is set up, and the way the days are structured, the way the classes are segregated, and going back to the foundation of the school system. Let's let's go there. That's the last thing I'll mention here. Going back to the Prussian education model that I mentioned earlier in this episode and in previous episodes, the idea there was that during the Napoleon Wars, Prussia got creamed. They did not perform as well as they thought they would have. They thought they would have done very well, but they didn't. And one of the reasons for that, that they determined, was that their soldiers were thinking for themselves a little bit too much. They weren't respecting authority enough. They weren't just blindly obeying orders like they should. And so, something needed to be done here. At the same time, you had factory work becoming more and more prevalent, and things like assembly line work or the predecessors of this, where it was repetitive tasks that people were doing over and over again— And again, it's the same thing. You don't want people that are questioning authority, not following orders. No, you just want them to follow the rules. There's a very basic method that they have to do. They do this, then that, then that, then repeat. This, that, that. Repeat. This, that, that. 
And so how do you get a workforce that operates this way very well and efficiently? How do you get a military that can operate this way, this efficiently? Well, it starts with their education. And so they created this education model where they did a lot of the things we have mentioned here, where it's very highly structured, it's very highly segregated, you teach very specific things, you teach things like the intellectual dependency where someone can only learn something from an expert and that keeps them from trying to branch out and learn something on their own or thinking that they can you know, have an idea or a concept that might be above and beyond what their whoever's in authority over them had told them. Well, of course they can't because the person in authority is the expert and they're the ones that know the most and they know more than I do. So why would I ever question that? And they created a whole education system to promote a good workforce and a good military. And this isn't necessarily evil. It is efficient and it makes sense. It's effective. And that's what they did. And that's what our current education system, the public school system, was founded on. Now, this was not necessarily done exactly the same. And you didn't necessarily have the same hidden agenda that was going on there. However, that's something that people debate as well. But the point is that we have a system that in its core structure by itself does not promote critical thinking. It does not promote true learning or incentivize it. When kids are little, they are very curious. You get that why stage. Well, well, why? Well, why? Well, why? And there's why to every single question. Or what does that mean? What does that say? Why does it do that? And kids are just curious. They want to learn. They get into things, whether it be tools or machines or animals or whatever the case may be. They're interested in something and they want to learn about it and they want to read about it. They want you to tell them about it. They want you to show them. They want to interact with it. Kids naturally are curious and want to learn. Well, what happens when you take that kid and you sit him in a classroom and make him do these specific coloring pages and writing assignments and sit at a desk and listen to the teacher and not speak too loud, not get up too much, and all this stuff that we do when we start sending our kids to school. Well, as school progresses, the kid quickly figures out that learning really isn't all that much fun, that, you know, this kind of sucks. I don't really like this. Why in the world am I here? Yeah, learning is not fun. Learning is actually not very cool at all. Any kid that actually wants to learn, probably a loser. They're just a nerd. You know, why would anybody want to do that? This is boring. This is what all the adults want me to do. And it promotes those kinds of attitudes. Instead of fostering and encouraging this native curiosity and this native desire to learn, which is a shame, but that is the system. Again, the teachers want kids to learn well. Most teachers care about their kids and they want to do its best, but how much control do you have with a system that is structured in this way with these faults and with these issues? And some of them, again, are native to just trying to educate thousands of kids in one building with a limited budget and set standard curriculum. And yeah, how much control do you have over that? You do have some and you can make an impact. 
but how much overall over the course of that child's whole learning career? Yeah, it's kind of limited. So that's all I got. Again, long episode, sorry, or you're welcome, whatever the case may be. Let me give a shout out to all of our different resources. We've got our website at ourfoundations.podbean.com where you can see different resources, different authors and podcasts that I personally have used and learned from. There is an outline there for what the podcast is going to look like in the future, what our following episodes are going to be. I try to update that as I come up with specific titles and specific subjects. So you can see that. Uh, Further from that would be the Patreon page at patreon.com slash ourfoundations. And there I have a setup for possibilities for season two. So season one is government money and education and what that means, what it what the history is, what the current state is, what the future may look like. But season two is going to be a slightly different structure, and there's a few different possibilities for that. So if you have interest in seeing what those possibilities are, if you're a subscriber, you can give input on that. And so if you want to donate, then you can go to patreon.com slash our foundations. You can donate there, subscribe. I do put out bonus episodes there that oftentimes will be released on the main feed eventually, but you might get them a year in advance or maybe a few months in advance. It just depends. And some of them may never hit the main, the main feed. So there is some bonus content there. You do have some more input and some say in the direction of the podcast. And so that's on the Patreon page. The other resource would be our Twitter account. We actually have a few followers now, so it's getting interesting here. And the Twitter is filled with a lot of anti-government interesting quotes and memes that is basically our Twitter feed. And so it is interesting, to say the least. That is um, at FoundationsPC, and that's where you can find us on Twitter. The last resource will be our email address. That is ourfoundations at protonmail.com. Please feel free to email me with questions, concerns, comments, any desires. If you have something you want me to cover, put it out there. If you have a question about something, put it out there. Send me anything you want. All of this information should be in the show notes, so you can look under the show notes for this episode. should have a link for all these different things. I guess the other one is the supporting through shopping on Amazon. So we have an Amazon link that's set up where if you click on that link and then do any normal shopping on Amazon, it takes you directly to Amazon. Then a small donation will be given to the podcast by Amazon. So thank you, Jeff Bezos. But only if you do your shopping through our link. And again, that's found in the show notes. It's found on the website. It's found on the Patreon page. I try to put it everywhere. So if you'd be willing to do that, that's a way that you can support the podcast in a small monetary form without actually having to pay anything or do much of anything. You just click on a link and do your normal Amazon shopping. So there's that. The other way you can support that is very important is to please leave a rating and leave a review. And if you are listening on the Podbean app on our website, then if you have an Apple account or an iTunes account, you can still go there and give a rating on iTunes. 
if you listen to podcasts on any other app, you can get on there. Even if that's not directly where you listen to this podcast usually, you can still get on those other apps and leave a review or rating there. And that is highly appreciated. That really helps get the podcast out there. That is all I have. Thank you very much for listening. The next episode we're going to be doing will be on Austrian economics and Keynesian economics. So this, I believe, will be very interesting. I am really looking forward to it. I am a big proponent of Austrian economics, but most people are more familiar with the Keynesian model, and we're going to be discussing that and how that affects not only economics, but also politics and worldviews and all kinds of stuff. So it should be really interesting. Come back next time. I'm out. Peace. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye.